which is to say that when facts have yet to be established or when facts are in controversy, that is what the wedge issue is that allows politicians, grifters, wannabe influencers to step in and say, you're being lied to. Networks, a look at the current state of mis- and disinformation online with the scholars studying it from the front lines. We're your hosts, Emily Boardman and Deloy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Viral Networks, a podcast about mis- and disinformation. Today, it can feel like any major social issue is exacerbated by mis- and disinformation elections, immigration, or COVID-19, just to name a few. Yes, that's right. And often when we encounter deceptive memes or hashtags promoting conspiracy theories, it seems like that content is being shared organically. But as soon as you start separating fact from fiction, mysteries about this content begin to unfold. Maybe you've heard of the term fake news thrown around by politicians and pundits. But mis- and disinformation goes a lot deeper than that. Around 2015, the field of disinformation studies coalesced to understand the origination and spread of disinformation in the digital space. Scholars of human-computer interaction, psychology, political science, and sociology came together to study mis- and disinformation from a number of angles, and the field has only grown from there. Here on Viral Networks, we'll be taking a forensic approach to mis- and disinformation talking to the researchers trying to solve the mystery of who is producing this material, how they're making it go viral, and why they do it. If you want to learn about how this stuff gets made, how it moves around, and what we can do about it, you're in the right place. Across six episodes, all about half an hour long, we'll be talking with a wide range of researchers, ranging from public health experts to academics in the social sciences to doctors and folklorists. We conducted these interviews in the summer and fall of 2021. So dis and misinformation are two different things, although of course they're related. Without further ado, we turn to Camille Francois, who we invited on the show to help us understand in the biggest picture sense, what is mis- and disinformation? She has a talent for making the problem sound simple, but really we'll be spending the entire series unpacking the breakdown she gives us here. We call misinformation the sharing of information that is false, but that people are sharing without an intent to deceive and without malice. And so, for instance, if I hear something about a vaccine that is actually false and I am spreading it to my loved ones because I am concerned about it and I want them to know, um, I am not trying to trick them. I am not trying to deceive them. Um, I am simply sharing a false information um, 
because you know because maybe I believed in it and so that's what we call misinformation it's a big problem in for instance uh, the medical field right medical misinformation is the sharing of fake cures uh, you know which again people share without an intent to harm but uh, in case it might be true um, or of course it's a big issue uh, with anything related to vaccine safety now disinformation uh, is different from misinformation because of the intent of the person who's sharing it and so we call disinformation information that is false but that is shared with an intent to deceive an intent to trick your audience we'd love to have a solid answer for why is this issue important why are we spending time why should sort of your average listener care about mis and disinformation it's important because it shapes our realities, right? I think that um, it used to be easier to argue that what happens online stays online. I think in 2021, that's a difficult argument to make. We know that what happens online shapes offline behaviors, right? Um, we know that that separation is artificial. We know that whether or not people make important decisions about their health, offline is informed by what they're reading on the internet. Um, we know that when hate movements happen online, it can lead to offline insurrections. And I think that's one of the reasons why it really matters. Um, it's because all of this really shapes our society. In 2019, Camille developed one of her most valuable contributions to the field of disinformation studies. She calls it the disinformation ABC. It's a really helpful framework for understanding the different ways a researcher can investigate and analyze disinformation. It helped us to structure our podcast too. A, B, C. Okay, that starts with A, manipulative actors. Sometimes you look at a piece of content on the internet and it doesn't look like it's been amplified by bots or it doesn't look bad, you know, like the content in itself is particularly deceptive. And you would wonder like, why is this disinformation, right? And the reason why this is disinformation can be that it has been crafted by a sophisticated manipulative actor. And so this could be a campaign coming from Russian actor, Iranian actor, Chinese actor, and really any of these sophisticated actors who use disinformation for geopolitical goals. And if you look one degree of granularity sort of closer, you also realize that when we say Russian actors engaging in uh, state-sponsored disinformation, there's actually a wide range of different types of Russian actors. Whether, for instance, it's coming from military intelligence, is a very different type of campaign, the campaigns that are coming from troll farms like the Internet Research Agency. We've also seen corporate actors use this. Recently, my team worked on a campaign in which uh, there were a series of pro Huawei fake accounts who were commenting on um, Belgium regulatory proposals around 5G. And so when we see this, we also realize that corporate actors too have their own strategic objectives that they may or may not achieve using these types of methods, right? Next. Camille explained B stands for deceptive behaviors. So this is about campaigns that 
don't have content that is necessarily deceptive and are not necessarily put together by manipulative actors. But the way they're spreading are using distortive behavior. So it could be, for instance, they're pushed by a bot army um, or they're gaming a set of systems on the platform so that their impact, right, their impact is... Uh, perceived to be much more than what they really have, right? It looks like this is a large-scale movement of people endorsing an idea when really it is just like just a set of parameters that have been well-tuned and a set of behaviors that have been employed to make it look like bigger than what it is or more impactful than what it is. That's, for instance, famously bots. And finally, C is harmful content. And it's interesting because today in 2021, we absolutely accept that there is a category of content that on its on its face constitute disinformation and that the platform will take action for it. It wasn't the case a few years ago, and that sort of is the last category that the platforms engaged with. I think when disinformation became a key topic, they were more focused on manipulative actors, right? This is kind of where this big reckoning of Silicon Valley with disinformation came from in 2017 uh, with the Russian investigation. Here, Camille was referring to an investigation by the U.S. federal government into the possibility that Russia attempted to tamper with the 2016 presidential election through a range of techniques, including purchasing intentionally misleading political advertisements on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. But, as she noted to us, some companies were attempting to take action against mis- and disinformation on their platforms prior to the fallout from the 2016 election, particularly around the burgeoning anti-vaccine movement that has been gaining steam on social media. There had been specific platforms like Pinterest who had said, you know, there is a type of information about medical issues that if it is false and widely distributed, we will take action because we think it's disinformation and it shouldn't be there. As, as you go through the model, it talks a lot about um, international actors and kind of foreign interference. It, it's, it's mostly about geopolitics, right? But when it gets to the C piece, which is the one about content, the example that you use is the, the Pinterest uh, that talks about medical or health information. Um, my impression was like, yeah, it is obviously easier to tell what is acceptable or true when talking about health information than when it's about politics. Has COVID changed that? I think it has changed that to the extent that a complicated, nuanced scientific conversation suddenly became very mainstream very quickly. And so the types of discussions, for instance, on different testing protocols for different vaccines, who used to be quite confined to, uh, you know, scientific communities online, are now absolutely mainstream. And the other main major factor in making this relationship more complicated is the emergence and growth and consolidation of conspiratorial communities online, which have played a very significant role in um, amplifying, creating, distributing both mis- and disinformation on all these sensitive topics, ranging from COVID-19 to electoral integrity.
when we're researching, misinformation is just the biggest, broadest bucket. Uh, and it essentially means the sharing of false information or falsehoods. There's no communication without misinformation. Uh, everybody makes speculative statements. I think I know. Uh, somebody told me. A lot of people are saying. Joe Donovan, the research director at the Harvard Sorensen Center, believes that spreading misinformation is something we do all the time and have been doing probably forever. Sometimes we just get things wrong. But what's fascinating about Joan's work is that it focuses on how political actors exploit this simple communication issue at huge scales and high speeds on the internet. There has to be another criteria for us to count something as misinformation, which is it has to come from some kind of source where people are taking it relatively seriously. It's not just, you know, an individual. There has to be some other phenomenon. Either it's coming from an institution or a government body or a journalist, or it's coming from a lot of people at once. There's some kind of networked effect. Uh, what is driving that phenomenon? Who's behind it? And so for misinformation, we we start to understand more about it as a phenomenon when we look at other criteria other than is this statement true or false? When it comes to disinformation, though, we are very much looking at intention. It's a very high bar to call something disinformation. So disinformation is the intentional spreading of false information for some kind of political or financial end. And so most of the stuff we study falls into the the bucket of financially incentivized um, misinformation or disinformation, grifts, scams, hoaxes, that kind of stuff. Part of the uh, exciting aspect of the field is someone is trying to trick you and your job is to figure out how. And so are they hiding who they are? Are they hiding what their intention is? Are they hiding who uh, is paying them? Are they, you know, and so in some ways, the field itself develops out of the technology because the technology isn't built for security and privacy. It's built for openness and scalability. And so it doesn't surprise me that you get these practices of media manipulation that require a subgenre of academic research to unpack and uncover. Uh, I view the field as something of a hybrid between cybersecurity and media studies uh, in a very strange way, which is to say that, of course, people have always tried to hoax journalists and this is, you know, they wouldn't call it PR <laughs> if, if uh, that wasn't also a heist, right? They would just call it what it is, which is media manipulation, right? Joan told us she considers another factor in addition to actors, behavior, and content. We could give it a D for design. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a torrent of hoaxes, scams, and grifts utilizing search engine optimization to try to get people's identities, to try to get their credit card numbers. Uh, and we saw, you know, fake all kinds of fake insurance, all kinds of fake cures, all kinds of uh, fake masks and, uh, you know, just lots of scam products uh, flood our media ecosystem, especially flood Facebook in particular. And through it all, these companies haven't really been able to stem the tide of uh, misinformation because 
it's an art it's an artifact literally of the design of the systems itself which is to say that i think the field now is starting to understand that we're not just dealing with actors behavior and content we're also dealing with with the with the design of the systems themselves and so you can't just say all right well you know facebook get rid of the scams on your your uh, system without also ensuring that facebook has a prevention strategy in place that won't allow this to keep happening the repetitive problem with media manipulation and disinformation actors is that they know that any breaking news event can be leveraged to introduce fake information or false information into the world and it's actually really hard to start up a campaign from scratch and get people to pay attention to it so we've seen um over the last several years uh extreme weather events mass shootings uh these become places in which people will introduce false news or fake information as a way to draw people into some other um set of concerns right and so they'll use sock puppets they'll use bots um and a lot of times what they're trying to do is just give people enough information where they'll click like and follow and it's preceding the field so that when they do want to launch a political campaign they're able to and so we saw accounts uh you know in 2016 that were posting stuff about the kardashians for a while just trying to gain followers and and get attention and then when they needed to switched into more politicized content the system's designed so that thousands of individuals that don't live together that don't communicate with one another all see something online and are like that's cool like it next thing what joan is talking about here is kind of terrifying to think about social media helps people communicate with strangers so quickly and at such a large scale that any crisis can be exploited at the drop of a hat you might find yourself asking where did we go wrong is there any good that can come out of a system that lets information basically move around with so little friction as i think about what we know in this field the the things that i focused on is that people do make decisions based upon real time information and nowhere did we see that more clearly during the pandemic how do you get a society to start wearing masks how do you get a society to stop going to work how do you get it? you know we've witnessed some amazing huge broad social changes that have come about because everybody had to be connected to the same information um and of course that doesn't come with uniform uh you know participation and people still resist uh but at the same time things changed and things changed in mass and they changed really quickly which is testament to the fact that the information ecosystem has immense value and immense purpose and immense power as a result but the pandemic has also taught us that if you tell people uh at 8 p.m. on Fox News that uh hydroxychloroquine might solve their uh or might act as a prophylactic against uh covid that within seconds they'll be searching for hydroxychloroquine on Google and within minutes they'll be clicking on things that they think are uh related searches in order to try to buy supplements 
And then downstream of that, you'll see a shortage at the pharmacy on hydroxychloroquine. You'll also see people buying tonic water because it contains chloroquine, which is a related search. Uh, and then some people, uh, at least two people, ate fish food. And one of them passed away because they thought one of the chemicals in it was going to prevent them from getting COVID. And so people do take action based upon information. And as a result, we have to be really clear about what kind of advice, uh, especially medical advice, people are, are getting when they're searching for things like COVID cure uh, or COVID uh, you know, prevention. But Joan did offer us some hope. There are ways to design social media to encourage community moderation of facts, which can foster a healthier discourse. The way in which Reddit has dealt with coronavirus information has been really exemplary in the sense that people, when they post things on Reddit, have to tag it and categorize it so that there's a little bit more context to it. There's moderation on the message boards uh, so that things that are um, erroneous or problematic get removed fairly quickly. Uh, and there's just a different set of care given to um, keeping this, the information environments uh, high quality. Uh, Joan, I'd like to spend some time with you trying to untangle political misinformation, medical misinformation. What are the spaces where the phenomena and the dynamics of play are the same? What are some key differences? Some of the people we've spoken to have used a broad brush and sort of think that medical misinfo can be lumped in and studied the same and others think it's completely a different beast. So I'm curious on your views and what you see as the overlap. Completely different. And they're completely different because the um, the 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 rationale for why one can be true and one can be false is completely different. Everything in politics is, to some degree, up to discretion. Whereas we have a scientific method that establishes facts. Facts are merely patterns <laughs> that are reliable. Um, but what is being leveraged with medical misinformation is by and large scientific uncertainty, which is to say that when facts have yet to be established or when facts are in controversy, that is what the wedge issue is that allows politicians, grifters, wannabe influencers to step in and say, you're being lied to. And this is really important that we understand that when millions of people are getting the wrong information in mass, they take action on it and it can actually turn really deadly. Joan just scratched the surface of the issues with mis and disinformation that we're facing as a global community during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. In our next episode, we'll be diving into that exactly. How has our collective information disorder shaped the way we're responding to COVID? Still to come on viral networks, a look at who actually creates disinformation content, talking with experts about psychological interventions to combat it, studying coordinated inauthentic behavior, and more. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you join us for the rest.
Viral Networks is a production of Media Ecosystems Analysis Group. We're your hosts, Emily Boardman and Dulaway. And Fernando Bermejo. All episodes are produced and edited by Mike Sugarman. Julia Hong joined us as a scriptwriter and provided additional research. Music on this show was composed by Neil and our producer Mike. Funding to produce this series was provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And last but certainly not least, we want to give a big thank you to all of the experts who joined us for interviews on this show. 